Uh, before we read our passage this morning, uh, I, I want to start with our young ones. Uh, this is how we we kick off every uh, part. This is how we kick off this part of the service. Uh, before we jump into the passage, I want to tell you what the passage is going to be about. Before we get into the passage, so young ones, if I could have your attention, I have a riddle for you. Okay, so this is one of those things you, you don't even have to raise your hand. If you think you know the answer to this question, just let me hear it. Okay, <clears throat> this is a, this is this is an old one. Uh, if a tree falls in a forest, and no one is around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. Ooh, emphatic yes. Do we want to get into a debate here? Kids, anybody else think? Okay, just think about this. We, we heard a yes. If a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. We heard yes, but how can sound exist if there is no one there to hear it? If there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Yes, of course, of course it does. This is like this big philosophical thing where you have scientists saying, no, because of what sound is. Of course, well, one, there are also animals in the forest. And two, guess what? God is everywhere too. Yes, it makes a sound because that is how God made it. Here's the thing. Y'all, do th- this is a big question. Do things exist if you can't see them or hear them. Sanders, thank you. Thumbs up, yes. Like, you know, some of your friends, maybe some of your family members aren't here right now. Do they still exist? Yes, yes, of course, yes, yes. Okay, just because you can't see something or hear something doesn't mean that thing does not exist. Uh, Can you see or hear God? Does he exist? Yes. Where is God? Yes, up in heaven, and right here with all of us, says Teddy. Yes, Sanders right, up in heaven, and Teddy's right. Yes, down here, he is everywhere. Can you see God? No, but guess what? He can see you. Uh, I remember this was a while ago. uh, I was telling uh, our kids, hey, God is everywhere, and he lives inside of you. And that really freaked out Peyton. Uh, my second boy, uh, he was really young, and I said that, and he went, <laughs> and he, you know, thought maybe he'd eaten Jesus or that he, you know, was going to explode with Jesus. Uh, no, what it means is uh, God's spirit, he really is everywhere, and he even lives inside of you. Uh, because you have Jesus, and that's awesome. That is what actually gives you life. Okay, so here's, here's you can't see God. You can't see God. You can't see everything that he's doing. Can, are there some things that you can see that God is doing in your life? Like, what are some good things that you know, oh, man, that's so good. That's, that's from God. Anybody, kids, anybody? Is there anything good that you have that you can see, touch, that you're like, oh, that's good? Anything. Could be a big thing, could be a small thing. Anything, anything, anything. I know, I see y'all like asking parents and stuff. Uh, This is a good place we can wrestle with stuff out loud. How about this? Like, how about food on your table? How about like a roof over your head and you have a bed? How about this? You can take a shower when you want to take a shower. That's a big deal. Uh, that you, you can, you know, you've got a clean place to go potty. Like all that is a really, 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 really big deal. Like there are good things. You've got clothes, food, roof, 
Good things you could do, like every good thing you have is actually from God. Now, how about this? How about this? What are some things that you cannot see that you think God has given you that are really good? This, is, this, this may be a harder one, maybe not. What's that? Help. Hey, what's the biggest help God has given you ever? Biggest help God has ever given you. Grace. Jesus. Salvation. Can you see that? Like, can you see God's salvation for you? No, no you can't see it. Is it true? Is it there? Has he done it? Yes, yes, it's okay. Yes, not a trick question. Yes, like this, his plan for your life, like you can't see it. Like his love for you, you can't see it. His grace for you, you can't see it. Like how he's taking care of you literally right now and literally he is here right now and you can't see him and he is loving you and taking care of you right now. You can't see it, but just because you can't see it, just because you can't hear it does not mean it's not there. He is there. And we know it because of what Jesus has already done for us. Like, we're on this side of the cross, which is awesome. We can look back at the cross and know, oh, I know God loves me because he has saved me because of what Jesus has done, living for me and dying for me, being raised from the, like, is Jesus alive right now? Yes. Even though you can't see him, he is alive, and one day you will see him. And y'all, this is not meant to, like, scare you. This is meant to, like, blow your mind. Jesus is with us right now. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, <clears throat> the purpose of Cornerstone, we say, it's on the front of our order of worship, is gathering, growing, and glorifying, that we gather people uh, in order to grow together, in order to be glorifying Jesus. That they're there's an order to that purpose. <clears throat> and I don't want to say it's a natural, like this is just a natural order of things. It's a supernatural order of gathering, growing, and glorifying. <clears throat> it's, uh, <clears throat> sorry, this is derived, this supernatural order of our purpose is derived from God's supernatural word, the Bible. That's, that's what we're going to be looking at in this passage this morning. This is, this is from Hebrews chapter 12. We're just jumping into the middle of this thing. But what I want you is, there's so many awesome things here. What we're focusing on is the order uh, that this passage presents us, the supernatural order. And uh, let me give you just a little context since we're jumping into the middle. We're, we're starting our gospel series this fall, next Sunday, in the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> this Sunday, I want to kind of set some context for it. Uh, this passage, it opens up talking about Moses and the Israelites. That's Old Testament stuff, okay? Uh, God has just delivered Israel out of slavery. You know, Moses, let my people go tell Pharaoh, let my people go stuff. <clears throat> He's just brought them out of Egypt. Uh, Moses has, uh, has just come with the Israelites to, you know, they cross the Red Sea, uh, and they get to Mount Sinai. That's where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. Okay, when they get to Mount Sinai, they're huddled around the mountain God comes down on the mountain, not in a ball of fire. The whole mountain goes up in flames. The whole mountain, God descends on the mountain, and the whole mountain is on fire. Okay? And the people of Israel are, 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 have just huddled around it, and they are freaking out. It's terrifying. There's lightning. It, it sounds like it looks like Judgment Day. 
Uh, that's what we're jumping into right here. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Now the writer here is addressing the church, talking about all that Moses, Israel, Mount Sinai stuff. The writer says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> this pa- so the passage starts with Israel at Sinai and then compares that gathering to this gathering, to the gathering of the New Testament church in worship. What it's specifically comparing is the worship of Israel at Sinai with the worship of the New Testament church. So uh, the passage makes... These two sound so, so, so different. It, it sounds so different that it's, it's easy to just focus on the differences of Old Testament Israel worship there at Mount Sinai and New Testament church worship. But then you miss what they have in common, and that's really important. I remember this. I was grilling with a buddy, and, uh, and he tells me how just the other day, uh, he and his dogs, they go outside uh, late night, they surprise some raccoons in their backyard. And they go out there and they see, they see this horde of raccoons and everyone freezes. The dogs freeze. My friend freezes. The raccoons freeze. They all kind of stare at each other for a minute. And then all of a sudden, ah! and you know, the raccoons like, just like they break for it. And they go into all these different hiding spots in the backyard, he notices. And so we're sitting there, we're grilling. And I said, well, where do you think they are right now? And he says, they're sleeping. You know, they're still asleep. It's not late. They're sleeping. And I said, you think they smell this food? Do, you know, do raccoons eat, do they eat meat? What, what, what does a raccoon eat? And he says, they eat trash. They eat junk. And I said, I just said, dumb raccoons, like big rats. And then just immediately he said, like small people. And, and I've, I've thought about, you know, at that moment, that's <laughs> funny, it's less close. But I thought about it is really, really insightful. People and raccoons. Like, our differences, they're so, you know, they're pretty obvious. Uh, you know, they're so obvious, you can miss what we have in common. That we both eat junk. Uh, and we both like to sleep all day. 
and we both like to stay out all night. And we both have these big black rings around our eyes. And we both like to fight. And we're both adorable. Uh, like just, and just like that, really, people and raccoons, just like, there are differences between Old Testament and New Testament worship. And there are so many similarities. They're just, they really are. They're, just, they're so similar. A lot of differences between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship they have to do with you know, this big transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament because New Testament worship is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament worship and what it pointed to. We'll come back to that. And if that's true, if it's true that one is the fulfillment of what came before, then there've got to be similarities between them. There've got to be some continuities between the two. This passage is saying that Israel at Sinai is actually the paradigm it's the model for worship in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not, not one-to-one, not one-to-one pattern. Uh, there are differences. But Israel is a pattern paradigm model for the church. Uh, which, so what patterns do we see here that are really important for us? How about this? One, it all starts with a call to worship. What we said with our call to worship. At Sinai, first, God calls the people to worship him. You can see that in Exodus 19, right at the beginning where it describes this stuff. The Hebrews writer tells us that when we gather, we've come to a heavenly assembly, verse 22. And then he says again, verse 28, so we offer appropriate worship. God has gathered us here uh, and called us to this thing. So that, two, we see that Israel at Sinai, uh, that this worship service, is, it's a, a dialogue, that there is communion between the people and God, God and his people. Isn't like they confess, Israel confessed. Uh, they confess to God what they believe. They confess how they have failed. Uh, they pray and they pray praise and they praise thanks. They make financial offerings. They read from the word of God. And then it gets explained to them. And there's a communion meal. And there's blessing. Okay, the New Testament incorporates all these elements into the worship of the New Testament church. And there's one more very, 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 very important similarity between Old Testament and New Testament worship. It's this. Before you get Israel gathered at Sinai, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. When God first appears to Moses, if you remember this, you remember burning bush stuff? Yeah, that was way before, you know, Moses had left uh, Egypt God finds him in the desert, burning bush. God tells Moses, Moses, you're going back to Egypt. Moses, go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my people go. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, Pharaoh, saying, and this is, this is Exodus 7, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Which means... Israel coming to Mount Sinai to worship God after the Exodus, that is the reason for the Exodus itself. Here's, here's the very, 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 very important similarity between Old Testament and New Testament worship. To worship God, you first have to be saved by God. To worship God. First, God saves a people in order that they would worship him. Redemption comes first, then worship. 
That was true of Old Testament Israel. It's true of the New Testament church. This is a supernatural order. This supernatural order, it's, it's like a natural order of things. You know, it's not eat your ice cream and then you can have your vegetables. No. Uh, it, you may feel that, like, deep down in your bones, that that is the way it should be. Uh, I did, but that's not the way it is. It's you eat your veggies, then you get your ice cream. Okay, it's the birds and the bees, and then that bundle of joy. It's life is hard, then you die. Order of things. There's a natural order to things. And there's a supernatural order to our worship. That's what this passage is getting at. With that weird part in the middle that says, in this worship gathering thing that you do with God and with each other, you've come to, you've come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, wait. That's also Old Testament stuff, Abel. This guy, Abel, uh, he's the second guy ever born in history, literally. He's the younger brother. He's He's the second son of Adam and Eve. His big brother's Cain. Cain and Abel, that's this Abel. And in one of the absolute saddest, most terrible moments in the history of mankind, second only to that, that fall that ruined everything, uh, the older brother murdered his younger brother. Cain murdered Abel. And he did it because his little brother Abel worshipped God. And Cain wanted to worship himself. And God comes to Cain and he confronts Cain and he says to Cain, what is this you have done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood crying out. This is, the, this is, the, this is the, what this weird phrase in Hebrews 12 means. Abel's blood was calling for justice. You know, first it's calling for judgment on the one who wronged him. And it's calling for righteous vindication for himself. It's this thing of, I, I did not deserve this. I, I was murdered for doing the one important thing I was truly made for, for worshiping God. Help, he's, the blood is crying out, help me and get him. So then what does it mean here when it says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, like Abel's blood, Jesus' blood calls for justice, for judgment on those who have wronged him, and for a righteous vindication for himself. But Jesus' blood calls for this infinitely better than Abel's blood because unlike Abel and everyone else who has ever lived, Jesus was the only truly, absolutely perfect person who did not deserve to die. Abel, everyone else, you, me, we actually do deserve death. We actually do deserve judgment for our sins. We actually do deserve God's justice because we are, loved ones, we are the ones who have wronged Jesus with our sin. And the amazing grace of God is that Jesus came and he died his unjust death on the cross in the place of those who wronged him. Uh, to, to take death and to take judgment for sinners in our place. And 
his bodily resurrection, in his glory in heaven, that is his vindication. And because he took our place, and because he paid our debt, his blood does declare that righteous vindication for you too. As in that you, it declares, Jesus' blood declares that you are actually forgiven. That you are righteous. That you too will be resurrected in glory. Death and judgment, they have no hold on you. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood, which is why we always talk about death, why we always glory in the cross. Carl Truman, a church historian, he's an author, he's a cultural commentator. He has said that a lot of contemporary worship, this is being critical, a lot of contemporary worship in the church is characterized by upbeat rock music, bad stand-up comedy, and, and hallmark channel sentimentality. Uh, that It's this your best life now stuff. Um, and, and Truman says, he says, the problem with Christian worship in the contemporary world is not that it is too entertaining, but that it is not entertaining enough. He says, what worship in most churches neglects today is we neglect tragedy, uh, which at worst is a lie uh, and at best is naive distraction from reality. And and listen, as much as we lie and as much as we distract ourselves throughout the week, we (laughs) we all know the irresistible draw to stories of tragedy, to the to stories of, of the tragic, you know, whether it's local gossip, which everyone here loves, whether it's local gossip or it's a good book, uh, or it's art, or it's a, a play on a stage, or it's some your reality TV shows that are just about totally broken, messed up people, um, or to the year-long series, the sagas. Uh, that everyone is binging right now. Like we, we get it. We know we are drawn to the tragic stuff because it makes sense of our tragic lives. And Truman says tragedy as a form of art and of entertainment, it highlights death. And death is central to true Christian worship. Christian worship should immerse people in the reality of the tragedy of the human fall and of all subsequent human life. It's only this kind of worship that actually provides us with the appropriate language to praise the God of resurrection. Truman says, of all places, the church should, should surely be the most realistic. As in, we, we, we have wronged God. We have wronged each other because we want to worship ourselves. We, know, we here all know the tragedy of this life, that should end, that it really should end in death and judgment. And the blood and the death of Jesus has saved us from it. And he has saved you from yourself for himself. He saved you from your self-worship so that you would love and worship him. One commentator said it this way, the aim of redemption, just what we said, the aim of redemption is worship. So like with Israel at Sinai, so with the church, that is the supernatural order of things. Redemption first, then worship. That's Cornerstone's purpose. And listen, as we look around here, 
as beautiful as this theater is, and it is beautiful, like we can look around and we can say, yeah, this doesn't look like much. Like we're not worshiping next to a literal mountain of fire. Like you're, you're not here listening to the voice of Moses. Uh, you're not here listening to the voice of God. And uh, sorry, not sorry, we have it better. We, we're, we're not hearing the voice of God. We have it better. Yes, we've got it better than Israel at Sinai. Right here, right now. Okay, like people in raccoons aren't exactly the same. Uh, there are also major differences between the worship of Israel at Sinai and the church. The worship of Old Testament Israel, it involved coming to a mountain that you can touch, but you can't touch. And it came, you came to an earthly mountain. But the worship of the New Testament church involves coming to a heavenly mountain, verse 22 says. Like right now, right here, in this moment, you have come to a heavenly mountain, which puts a bit of a spin on what we started with the kids as like, what's really real? And how, how do you know something is real? It's like, like thinking that prayer is not the most real thing we could do because we can't see the one we're praying to. We can't hear his response. We can't see its effect. What's really real? Who's really, really, really gathered here right now? Mount Sinai was just a symbol of heaven. Our gathering here is not a symbol of what Israel was doing at Sinai. Israel at Mount Sinai was a symbol of what we are doing here. And what we're doing is not a symbol of a heavenly gathering. Loved ones, our gathering right here, right now, is an earthly extension of that heavenly reality. What we are doing right here, right now, is an extension of what is going on in heaven right now. As in, Angels really are present here right now. Verse 22. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Verse 23. That's referring to the original Hebrew readers, readers of this, and to us. Us, the church. And it says, yeah, we're here. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's referring to those who have died in faith and are now in heaven. We gather here to worship our God in this assembly, in this theater, in Houston. We really do worship with those who are already assembled in heaven and with all the host of angels. And it says that in this gathering, to worship God means that you are coming into his presence. But that means you are coming into the presence of the judge, the judge of all. When Israel came to Mount Sinai and they came to God's fiery presence and it came down on the mountain and engulfed the whole mountain, this is God coming in judgment. This is judgment day. And the mountain is on fire. You can't go near it or it'll consume you in judgment. Verse 20, whatever you do, do not approach God. Israel at Sinai, their worship right there, that judgment day it was characterized by their sense of fear of judgment. As in the words of God, they're not finding them comforting they are frightening. They are terrifying. So much so that the, the Israelites beg God to stop talking to them. So much so that Moses is freaking out. They came to this judgment day and they did not know, they didn't know how they would survive it. They did survive it. 
and it was all of grace, but in the historical order of the unfolding of God saving his people, the Savior had not yet come. God's people put their faith in the promise that a Savior would come, but he hadn't come yet. All they've got is the promise in this hope. This is saying, how blessed are we? How blessed are we on this side of history, on this side of the cross, in the historical order of God's salvation? We have that promise fulfilled because the Savior has come. Their judgment day, not the final judgment day, it was a precursor, it was a sign. And even though, yes, that final, final judgment day has not come yet, we really do already participate in it because Jesus already took final judgment for us on the cross. Here's the so what. The so what for us is that when we come to worship on Sunday, we come into the presence of the judge. This, y'all, this is a judgment day too. What we're doing, like we have come into a judgment day. And you gotta remember that thing of Jesus' blood calling out for justice. This worship service, it is about judgment. It is about justice. But it's good judgment. It's good news for us. It's the best news. because It says in worship that we have come to Jesus, the mediator, mediator of a new covenant and to his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To start their worship service, Moses... To start that thing at Sinai, he sprinkles the whole nation with a bunch of blood from sacrificed animals. He goes around sprinkling everybody with blood. Everybody's covered in blood. Okay, that sprinkling was pointing to the ultimate sprinkling of blood, Jesus' death on the cross, the blood that actually truly has saved us and inaugurated this new relationship between God and his church. That's what the Bible says. That is what the Bible says when it refers to gospel. You'll hear that word gospel. It's what we're going to be talking about all fall. You hear that word gospel. The gospel is the story of the life and the death of Jesus, which establishes the church's relationship to God. It's this thing of redemption first, then worship. And the redemption that all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament points to, that they've all been, it's finally come in Jesus. And that's why, that is why here at Cornerstone, you just, man, always talk about the gospel. We will always talk about the gospel because it all gets to the gospel. And did you know, we're going to see this, did you know that the New Testament, in the New Testament, the offer of the gospel is most often addressed uh, once the church has been established. It's, it's most often addressed to the church. Like you read Paul's epistles, that gospel that is always talked about over and over and over, it's being offered to the church. One reason is there are surely unbelievers in that gathering of the early church, certainly. Another reason is, like the early church, there are children that are just growing up in it, and they need to hear it, and they need to learn it. Yes, absolutely. And because even the most spiritually mature Christian is in constant need of hearing, of being reminded and told to believe the gospel of their salvation that they are professing, to believe in the gospel uh, that it's Jesus's awesome grace. You've got to hear that. You've got to believe that before you offer acceptable worship to God. You have to know the gospel and be reminded of the gospel that it is not you, that it is Jesus who saves in order to worship the one who has saved with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Let's pray that we hear this gospel again in order that we might enter his presence with reverence and awe. Father, we do, we, we know 
that you have gathered us into your presence, that if we could pull back this, this veil, this, this curtain, this divide between the visible and invisible, the things that we would see and behold, Lord, give us that, give us that faith to believe that you, not only what you have done, but what you're doing right now, that you truly are with us, that you love us, that you're watching over every step we take, Father, that that would actually change the way we perceive this world and the way that we go about our day-to-day lives, knowing that we are not far from you, knowing that as big as you are, that you, that you are closer to us than we actually know. Father, we would ask you that you would bless us to walk by faith until that day that you come back and we walk by sight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.